This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today, we have part one of our interview with Terry Metalis, the showrunner of season three of Star Trek Picard. And the reason I say it's part one is because we talked to him for a really long time. It's epic. It is. There's too much for one episode. So we're going to do part one in this, part two next week. But before we even get to that, we are going to start with the news with a very quick update on what's going on for the 56-year mission in, we still call it, STLV, Star Trek Las Vegas. Loyal listeners to the Trek Movie Podcast Network uh, already got an update earlier this week from the Shuttlepod team. We're going to be there too. We're all It's all one big happy Trek Movie family in Vegas. Lori's coming. I'm coming. All of those guys are coming. Some other people are coming. <laughs> Now, if you do want to come and you don't have tickets, you're you may be screwed out because there's no way you could get a ticket for Saturday of any kind. It looks like it's for the most part sold out, but you may want to try uh, to see what you can get. And um, I think it, you know it's a somewhat smaller venue. I, I think a lot of people didn't go in the last few years. There was one last year, but it was smaller attendance because of COVID. And so I just think a lot of pent up demand in a smaller location created a uh, perfect storm of a sellout. And they only sell as many tickets as they have seats for. So that's part of the deal, too. They've also been adding uh, people from Strange New Worlds. So they're as they're adding more guests as they're selling out. They're up to 136 as the time of this taping. This is in two weeks. It starts on the 25th of August on a Thursday this year, not a Wednesday. and. Um, Runs through Sunday night. Yeah, week after that, we'll have a full recap. But over that weekend, keep up with the site and our social media, and we'll be uh, doing updates as we always do. Twitter's usually the best thing to follow in that case, because that's where we're, we're posting updates as we're sitting in panels. We've got a little bit of news from the corporate parent, as it were. They sent out a press release about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And according to Paramount, it's been the best Star Trek original premieres of the five Star Trek shows. Their five Star Trek shows, it's had the best premiere debut of all of them, which kind of makes sense because they have bigger numbers. They actually have more people subscribing to the network, too. But I mean, the, the point of it is, and I think the significance of this is that they really wanted to put out an announcement of this and call out Star Trek. And so I think that it speaks to their the way that they're viewing it and how imp- either important it is to them or how important they'd like it to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, last week, the CEO of all of Paramount Global brought up Star Trek as he was talking about how Paramount Plus is up to 43 million uh, subscriptions, which is a lot. I mean, it's not as big as Netflix, but it's pretty good for the kind of second tier of streaming services. And he mentioned Star Trek amongst other big franchises uh, you know, like the Halo show is doing really well for them, especially overseas. I, I think Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek was the, their biggest thing when it was their only thing back in 2017. Now it's one of many important things to Paramount and Paramount Global. I'm just always glad to hear them include it because I worry when I don't hear it, that it's not a priority. So I always want to hear that they're they're touting the success of Star Trek. I feel like it's very important to Star Trek's future. Especially in a week when there's been some weirdness happening with, you know, another streaming service and how they're handling their DC shows on yep. you know, HBO Max. 
the CEO of CBS, CBS Studios, produces all the Star Trek shows. He said, we look forward to the franchise's continuing journey on Paramount Plus here in the U.S. and globally, where in the case of Strange New Worlds, we're just getting started. Now, what I was hoping they'd throw into this press release, I read it like three times to make sure I didn't miss it, was, and we've announced a third season. Now, I can't imagine they wouldn't do a third season, but I guess it's just too early to announce it because the second season isn't going to show up until, you know, probably mid-2023. Right. I don't feel worried, but it would be nice to hear. But I'm not concerned. Yeah. You know, this show's a hit for them. They like talking about it. It's one of the few shows that seems to unite all the fans. Everybody seems to join forces and feel good about Strange New Worlds. So moving into another show, we have some Lower Decks updates because the cast was giving a lot of interviews. You know, it's not just the panel at Comic-Con. There are a lot of interviews after that. And so that's where you pick up little extra details on what's going to happen over the course of the season. It's almost worth just reading the article because Mike McMahon and the actors kind of just round up what the first two episodes are like you know and, and actually a good a good amount of detail so if you want to get spoiled you can read all about that you know we pick up some more tidbits about the season one of the things about the ds9 episode uh, mike describes it as kind of being an, a bonus ds9 episode like it from that show because it's they, they spend a whole episode on the station and you know you're going to see familiar faces in the whole nine yards so it's that sounds pretty exciting yeah he said it almost feels like it could have been in a later season of deep space nine which i mean tonally is interesting for sure but <laughs> but also it's just just i feel like we're going to get so much one funny behind the scenes thing is apparently mariner wasn't a doesn't actually go to the station with everyone else it's a tendy episode apparently that's one thing we know and um, Noah Wells says it's her favorite of the season because it's there's more tendy backstory. So Tawny calls Mike or texts him and is like pissed that Mariner it doesn't get to go up on the station because she is such a DS9 super fan. And so he actually rewrote it so that Mariner gets to go on the station. Good. And he, yeah. And he said, you know, when I should have, I'm glad it's better. <laughs> i just think it's funny that she's like i want to go oh i do it's the a- same thing i'd be so mad because if that's my favorite yeah. show if they did you know voyager or something and i wasn't involved I'd be like hello so good for her and good for him smart um also she also she's so funny she said that when they filmed the crossover with strange new worlds that she was so excited and sort of not realizing what she was doing, that she was touching everything and breaking everything. Like she apologized to the production teams because she said she just kept knocking things over and breaking them and pushing them too hard and doing stuff she wasn't supposed to do. I mean, apparently some of this stuff was done on camera, you know, while they were filming. Yeah. So let's see if we could spot the Tawny breaking something. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I feel very in sync with her as someone who's constantly knocking things over and breaking them. (laughs) Something I I did like is that Jack talked about how Boimler is different this season and he called him bold Boimler um, and he's, you know, being in. And in fact, Mike and he kind of agreed. You're not a big Seinfeld fan. I'm a big Seinfeld fan. And they they talk about how Brad's new attitude is basically George Costanza's attitude in the opposite, where he decides that he's going to just do the opposite of his instincts all the time because his old instincts weren't working for him. And so uh, Boimler's got a little bit of George Costanza in him this this season. He also, uh, Jack Quaid, was talking about how cool the Strange New Worlds crew is and said that he was shipping Boimler with Spock, 
and then he's calling it Spoimler. <laughs> I think he's just shipping because he thinks that's a funny name. I'm I not- think so too, but it just, all I can say is I just, I feel like all of these interviews are really getting me in the spirit of watching a lot of Lower Decks. I'm ready because this is where you really just get to get playful and fun. I'm so grateful we have this show. So uh, another little Lower Decks update for fans around the world. It's both not a surprise, but nice to hear. It is definitely going to be on Amazon Prime Video if it already is in your, depending on where you are. So UK, Ireland, Europe, India, Japan. If it's there now, it'll still be there. It'll show up on the Fridays after it shows up in the US. So the first one will be on Friday the 26th. And then every Friday after that. You know, this isn't a surprise, except people, you know, but Paramount Plus is expanding globally. They bought back the rights to Discovery. So some people were possibly worried they're going to do the same with Lower Decks, but they're not. It's nothing's changed, basically. You're all safe, Lower Decks fans. So another big thing that's been happening in Star Trek that a lot of people are talking about is Eagle Moss, who we all know they make. They're, you know, they make licensed ships and books and all kinds of Star Trek and other fr- other pr- products from other franchises as well. And so there's been all this talk about how it's over, which it seems to be. And so you did an interview with Ben Robinson, the licensing head of Eagle Moss, who's now no longer an employee. So I haven't had a chance to see how that conversation went, but um, what can you tell us? So this is not a surprise. They stopped selling anything last month in July. And there was a report that they had notified that they were going to go into administration, which is kind of the UK equivalent of bankruptcy. That has now officially happened. It happened last Friday where they have entered what's called administration, which means a third party administrator comes in, takes over the company and tries to settle debts. So it is done. Eagle Moss is over as a company, as it has been. However, according to Ben, and again, he's speaking as a private citizen now, but from his understanding, there are talks and discussions about finding ways to allow the things that were working and most of the Star Trek stuff, the ship stuff, and most importantly, the build the enterprise stuff, he says, were profitable things. They did work. These aren't the reasons why the company shut down. Those have to do with other product lines and expansions that didn't work out and they ran out of money. And I think the, the the biggest priority is this thing called Build the Enterprise, which I think you know, which was launched last year, where every month you get one or two packages, and you are slowly but surely building over a two year process a giant lit electronic Enterprise D. It's kind of like becomes your hobby for two years. The problem is, is that there's you know people out there who have an unfinished model like <laughs> one know, nacelle least... just the <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i think they've saucer. sent out both nacelles <laughs> i need to check so everyone knows the priorities to to finish that and he believes that that will happen but he has no dates no partner for that the other thing is you know there's still boxes of ships in warehouses of you know eventually that's going to be sold to someone and that will be that stuff will be available to buy the bigger question are what about things that haven't been released including things that they've announced and he said that he is hopeful that someone will pick up the license and continue the line it won't be called eagle moss but it'll be the same kind of stuff but there's nothing confirmed and 
you know, and there's some things that they're probably never going to get back to smaller product lines like figures and stuff like that. But the ship stuff looks like there's a future, but you know, we have nothing confirmed yet. Do you know anything about the books? Because they've been publishing some really good books. And I know like Nana Visitor's book was with them. And I, there was another one coming, I think, from Ben and Ian Spelling. Yeah, Ben seemed very relaxed about the books continuing in some other with some under some other publisher. He said those have oh, cool. sold well, and he feels that someone will pick up at least the ones that have been announced, including the Nana Visitor one. So, if you're a fan of Eagle Moss, if you've got shells and shells of Eagle Moss stuff, it's over, but it might not be over. If you know what I mean. You know, there's a glimmer of hope for Eagle Moss fans. Let's switch to Picard. But before we talk to Terry, we we actually already talked to Terry. But before we roll that in, <laughs> let's talk about other people talking about season three, starting off with a, a certain LeVar Burton. Who, who sort of got a little freaksy. <laughs> he definitely got a little freaksy, especially because it was actually from Megacon in Orlando, which is in May actually. So it was well before Comic-Con. It was after the announcement, of course, but uh, he just started talking about, you know, how they all looked great. And I mean, there there was no real big spoilers except for one thing, which we're going to kind of get into. But the way he talks about it, I think is really interesting. His point of view is they look great. and, And he wanted to make the point they look age appropriate. Yeah. This is before we saw the pictures of them. And everyone freaking out about, you know, uh, how Worf has white hair. But um, (laughs) I think I think they all look great. He thinks they all look great. Yeah, I think they look fantastic. But he said, you know, with age also comes better acting, essentially. And he, he talked about how their performances have been informed by the fact that they know each other so much better now because they've been in each other's lives. Yeah, consistently this whole time. You know, this wasn't a reunion for them. Except that they got to go to work together. But these people have all been in each other's lives nonstop. And he talked about how it's been a very long journey for Patrick Stewart, who, of course, was doing the two seasons back to back and said that when they were all together, they saw his energy level rise, like that he was exhausted and that they he thinks that their their love and camaraderie sort of helped get him to the to the end of the season in in a fine fashion, as he said. He'd already revealed that his daughter is part of the season, his daughter Mika Burton playing his Jordy's daughter. Um and Jordy has two daughters apparently in the season. But he described the season three as being about the next next generation. Yep. In a literal sense. And he talked about how they would carpool together regularly. So I know like so sweet. Like he said he didn't have to go in as early as she did. And he would just go with her because he said, when is that ever going to happen again? I, I'm guessing that she is going to possibly be in more than one episode. Oh, yeah. So the big thing that he talked about that got people buzzing um, was that he said, I feel like I should just say what he said just to make sure I don't mess it up. But he said, we spent three days on a bridge that they built that was a replica of the Enterprise that we had during the series. And he said, we went back to our bridge He said it wasn't exactly he had some shifts on the details, but he said the sense of coming home was real. We spent three days on this bridge and it was magical. It was like being in a time machine. We were transported back to the late 80s and the 90s. So everybody started saying, oh, they're going to spend they're all going to be on the on the D and it's going to be great. And and uh, (laughs) even Terry already was on Twitter saying, no, it's not. It's not what it sounds like. 
<laughs> no, we're not going to get into this in interview, but basically he said there's many nods to the past, but not what people are expecting based on you know what some people are reporting, which is the Enterprise D is back. You know, the, the funny thing is, is that they've done this before. I mean, the series started with a giant shot of Enterprise D and a replica set, which was in that case, 10 forward, right. which was a dream sequence in that case. So who knows what they're doing here? But it does sound like they spend some time on the Enterprise D set in some format, but the Enterprise D bridge. Right. Uh, we did specifically say the bridge. I mean, to me, I'm just excited. Like, that sounds great. The other people talking is interviews from Comic-Con. So it's Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden. One thing that I think is funny is when people go up to these guys and say, oh, let's talk about the reunion. Patrick Stewart doesn't like that word reunion. He, he, he categorically rejects the notion that season three is a reunion of the next generation. Right. He keeps saying it's not a walk down memory lane. It's, it's a new story. It's intense. It's personal. It's serious. And it's not, you know, let's get the gang back together and have fun. That isn't what the season's all about, is them all together doing things. Right. There are going to be tensions between them. Some of them have kept in, the characters. Now I'm talking about not the actors. Some of them have kept in touch. Some have not. Some have been doing noble things. Some maybe not so much. And so they're, they have to resolve their relationships with each other and rediscover how they connect with each other. Their dynamic has changed, he said. There's a particular fact here, which was revealed by Gates, which was that Picard and Crusher haven't spoken in over two decades. Right. So, you know, I mean, maybe not since shortly after Nemesis. So, but it also sounds like she is doing something far away, the way she talks about it. Like she's kind of. She keeps bringing up the web telescope when she talks about it but i understand why she's trying to say i've been very very far away <laughs> so I, I think we should hear it from the horse's mouth as it were <laughs> right well there's one other thing i just want to throw in there because we also got this afterwards which you know, after we talked to terry but when someone asked about wesley uh gates said you'll just have to see what happens in season three so yeah. to me, that that ain't no, no. Neither of us were huge fans in how they did it in season two. So if they do do it in season three, let's just hope he's in the same room as Jean-Luc Picard and or his mother. I'll tell you that in the interview that Terry did with the Inglorious Trexports a while back that we all really enjoyed, that was one of the things that came up. He talked about one of the reasons he was so interested in Dr. Crusher was the fact that she would let her son go off and do this you know, go off and be exploring different dimensions and <laughs> things like that. So this is obviously a story point that interests him. And so without further ado, let's roll the first half of our interview with Terry Metalis. Joining us now is Terry Metalis, the executive producer and showrunner for Star Trek Picard. Welcome, Terry. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's weird. You know, it's almost like you've been a guest before because we're always reading your tweets. <laughs> no, I got to get your, off Twitter. It's your too name much. comes up a lot, but you do ever, spend ever, a lot of time. I do. I, I do. It, 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 it's some it's the dopamine hit of Twitter of, of instant uh, connection to fans. And, you know, 
I, I'm also genuinely excited and, you know, chomping at the bit to tell people about season three, but I, you know, I can't, it's so far away. So, uh, you know, I've little teases, I think, keep people invested, I think, and keep a conversation going. So it's a community for better or for worse in, in all aspects. And uh, I think it's always better to, to be part of that and to engage in, you know, the positive and the negative. The negative's hard, but <laughs> but there's so much positivity, infinitely more love than than hate that that it's uh, it's an extraordinary thing to to be a part of. You know, it's fun. <laughs> you started, I mean, obviously you started with Star Trek in the 80s when you were a fan, but your professional start with Star Trek, which was the professional start of your career, was also at an interesting inflection point. It was in the, as I understand it, the late 90s, you know, so yeah. people like Ron Moore and others were. Yeah. Everybody yeah, was so there. That, so that was just when things like AOL and the internet were yeah. starting and they, they were engaging on the internet a little bit. Yes. So that must have been it, it. You know, that was kind of the beginning of internet fandom in a way. It was. You know, it's funny when you said AOL. I, I had a vivid memory of being an assistant in. Um, it was the Hart Building, where everyone was. It was Brandon, Ron, Brian Fuller, uh, uh, Rob Doherty, who would go on uh, to to do uh, eight years or twenty seven years of elementary on CBS juggernauts. Um, and I was the assistant there, but I remember at that time, uh, a little book called game of a uh, game of Thrones had come out <laughs> and by, uh, uh, George R. R. Martin, and he would be on AOL messenger all day. And you could just, you could just instant message George R. R. Martin all day. And after reading the, those two books, I, I have printouts of transcript. I think I know who Jon Snow's mother is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I was totally right. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it, it was the beginning of all of that. Uh, there certainly wasn't anything like Twitter, um, but it was the beginning of that sort of digital journalism. Well, so since you were there at that time, can we just give our listeners um, just your a, a brief history of, of your start professionally on Star Trek? So my final year in college... Uh, I went to Emerson College, which was in Boston, but they had uh, an incredible internship program out in Los Angeles, where for your final semester, you could get credit for just working in the industry. Uh, and I would send faxes back in those days. I would send faxes to every Star Trek fax number I could get. I just wanted to work on Star Trek. Uh, at that time, Voyager and DS9 were on the air. Uh, and, uh, I was, I was never going to get through. I just, I, tr I tried for months and then, uh, you know, finally I was going to have to settle on some shitty little script agency in like the Valley. And then finally I got a call from Star Trek post and they needed a lot of help because they were two shows going. They're like, come on in an interview. And I flew out from New Jersey to the Paramount lot, which is a thing you only saw in behind the scenes making of programs or in in star trek magazine the water tower picture and you know i'm having an an interview there and that was that was truly the beginning i did a, a year in star trek then graduated college and 
there was an opening to be a PA on Star Trek Voyager. So I interviewed with uh, Mary Howard, who, if you've watched those shows, have seen her name a million times throughout Next Gen and Voyager. Uh, and I got the job right out of college as a PA. And it was, man, it was one of the best jobs. Because you're on the Paramount lot, which is, a, is an incredible lot to begin with. And it's... Uh, but as a PA for production, you you get a chance to be a part of every aspect of the production, from the writers to the actors to the art department. So a day would consist of getting call sheets out, riding your bike in the sun, getting exercise, going down to set, uh, watching a little bit of shooting, and then continuing on your duties, and then going to hang out with the uh, Akutas and the art department with Doug Drexler and Jim Van Over and Jonathan Eaves, who I, I mean, that guy designed the Enterprise E. And like, show me some other designs of some of the other enterprises you did before they picked this one. It was, it was great to Rick Sternbach. And then, uh, then you'd go back down the set and you'd have to go to individual trailers. And that I was right at the, the beginning of seven of nine. So Jerry was uh, one of the newbies on the show as well. And, uh, befriended a young PA. <laughs> so it, it and so it was incredible. And then you'd go to the writers building and get the scripts and, and and uh and deliver those. So it was truly a masterclass and just here's how television is made, uh which you learn a little bit about in school but not until you really, you know, boots on the ground. You were coming into this as a super fan big fan of the 80s movies and next generation obviously mm-hmm. what did you think of voyager as a fan and what you know bringing in jerry and how the show was going at the time i thought introducing the borg was absolutely the right idea that the it's been a long time since i've i've watched uh, the earlier seasons of that show or very i mean i've watched a, a lot more seven of nine since certainly since working up the card but I do remember feeling like there was a stakes to the show that felt elevated um, and doing the sort of Hugh character, but bringing on a new regular who is an ex Borg, I thought, I thought was pretty terrific. It, it, it gave a Kirk Spock dynamic, uh, a Janeway. I mean, it's not quite, quite Kirk Spock because Janeway is, is certainly a, a maternal aspect to that seven of nine story, but it was a strong relationship. You know, with with real drama, uh, and I, I thought it elevated the show in, in every way. Often, when you hear, uh, you know, and Brian Fuller will talk about this, and and Brandon as well about there was this this tension in that era of do we go episodic or not? You know, do we stick with making sure we work in syndication and the reset button? And you know, did did you witness any of that? And did you even have an opinion on? on that kind of aspect of the show, like, you know, like should year of hell been a season as opposed to a two-parter, that kind of stuff. Yes. I I mean, I do remember I, there wasn't in my recollection, there was a tried and true formula. uh, And I think next gen would return to story arcs, but there wasn't a lot of reason for them to, to turn to serialization. And, and again, this is one of these things that, um, it's easy for fans to, but that's a corporate level decision. So when they go and sell the show into any kind of other syndication, they don't like a serialized show because sometimes they want to show them out of order or just dump them somewhere, those episodes. So there's there's quite a bit of corporate pressure not to serialize as well. 
Um, but I think it's impossible, I think, when it comes to Star Trek to ignore those longer story arcs having incredible impact to adding an identity to the show. It's Deep Space Nine just suddenly started to do it. And if I recall correctly, they sort of had a different kind of autonomy at the time in the way they were writing their show. Rick was was more focused on Voyager um, and, and, and I think probably felt um, probably more of a personal connection to that show. So I think Deep Space Nine brilliantly were able to do things like the Dominion War um, and uh, and really fleshed that out, what it meant for those characters. What's interesting about season three is it's a massive call to nostalgia. Obviously, you're bringing back the next generation crew. You literally made room by you know, season three of Picard. Yeah, but it's also, I believe you've described it as, you know, it's essentially a, 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 the final movie is drawn out over 10 episodes. But, you know, what made Next Gen Next Gen was that it was perfectly built for that episodic formula. Yes, they did return to storylines once in a while, but they really had a reset button as well. Is there an issue of taking these characters whose greatness was built in that era for that kind of format? Do they just flow perfectly into it or do you feel, you know, or is there an issue there at all? So it's a really valid question. And I believe you can have a serialized show, but you can also have episode identity. Um, and I think what happens in the streaming world and sometimes in serialization is they all kind of start to blend together because they're all, they all become one storyline without any episode identity. There are certain shows I can think of in, in big franchises where I'm like, I don't remember when that episode happened because it sort of all kind of blends together because it just was, it, it didn't, each episode didn't have their own identity. So in the case of season three, probably more so in season two, although we certainly tried to do that in season two as well. There is an episode identity. There's a couple of two-parters that are very much big, giant cliffhangers that that lead into each other. But each episode has uh, has an identity, and I think no, I I don't I, I don't particularly find it a, cha- a challenge because next gen, whatever anyone wants to to say about those those movies, uh, uh, the next gen movies, they did them, they exist, right? So. There is that world has been established in longer form storytelling. So in a lot of these characters, when you're serialized, you get to go deeper into them. You know, there's a relationship story in season three with with Riker and Troy. That is not something you would be able to do had the show just been episodic. They're put into a situation where they you really get to the core of what makes them great. And so I don't think so. I, you know, I, I do think, I think it was Eric, Eric Kripke, I'm not sure. So, uh, somebody posted a, a, a legitimate thing on Twitter, which was like, stop describing your season as a season-long movie. It was him, I remember that. And he, he's absolutely right. And I think the spirit of what he's, he's saying is, you can't just take a two-hour script and just spread it out. He, he's talking about momentum. You have to, you have to design it for television. It, it, they, they have to be 10 chapters. And so a movie's not quite really the right word. When we say season three is the last next-gen movie, it, it is. It's the spirit of that. But it is really a – it's a 10-hour miniseries. 
that has the, the highest cinematic value of a feature film. I would say certainly by the, the the last two hours are a movie. <laughs> there's no way <laughs> that that they're so big and giant um, that you know we're even talked about is there some kind of limited theatrical run, uh, but it, it, they it, it, it they are quite big. Yeah, I've had the same problem with a lot of contemporary shows that are just drawing out premises for too long. Like, you know, I love Star Wars as much as I love Star Trek, but I feel like both Book of Boba Fett and Kenobi, there was good stuff in there, but they it was hard to pick an episode. You know, they they were definitely falling into this trap. As you were crafting season three of Picard in the writer's room, you and your friends, um, were you looking to anyone to say, here, you know, because this is before Kenobi was out, but there are other examples in recent years of people not pulling it off. Right. Who, you know, did you have saying this is what we want to do? These these guys did it right. Look, I mean, there there are incredible examples of serialized television, whether that be seasons, some of the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones or or, or whatnot. Look, I was very fortunate to have uh, a, a couple of writers that I worked with on Twelve Monkeys, Chris Munfett. Uh, and Sean Tretta in, in the room. Uh, they were the driving force in a show I did, 12 Monkeys. And I, I would say, uh, if I had any bragging rights, I would say the last two seasons of, of 12 Monkeys are, the blueprint is perfect for what we did. And and it wasn't easy. You have to know exactly where you're going. You have to know why each individual chapter um, is an outstanding movie on its own. So we had already had that experience coming into season three. And so for me, the pressure was, uh, 12 Monkeys was my baby and the pressure was high to to end that show on the highest note possible. But this was Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> uh, so every day, the stress of not fucking that up was on me you know the drive in the drive home i mean it was very it was nerve-wracking so <laughs> we, we we mapped it you know i i think the key is like here are we know we know the moves now what are some of the chapters um that we we desperately want to tell like there's little there's little things where uh, there's a next gen character how do i say this that i, I desperately wanted to bring back but I did not want to do anything that wasn't organic. So there's so much discussion. You, uh, you just can't move forward on your first script until you you know exactly how it's going to end. Uh, the finale, the series finale is going to end. I think for it to truly be satisfying. I mean, there are things in the first episode of season three that are setting up the end. You know, it's hard. I, I can't really... Spec- I mean, there's some Breaking Bad. I mean, there there are... The Shield, FX, The Shield. Again, these aren't big sci-fi uh, shows, but they are shows that would nail a, 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 a serialized season. God, some of those early Battle Stars. There's no, there's nothing better than some of those Battle Star seasons. <laughs> and so, anyway, I digress. But no, I can't really point to anything specifically uh, that that is as a template. Before you started, were all the scripts for season three completely? done before you started filming like lock done so that you could no. see where everything god i was wish going. i wish <laughs> the 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 stories were the story itself was written there was a 40 page document of uh, of of a, of a map but there's also things you find along the way sometimes 
something you think you're going to do, you just can't make it work in the room and you don't want to, you don't want it to feel forced or, you know, there was a Voyager character. Uh, I remember spending almost two weeks in the room on, this is not a spoiler because it doesn't happen, but Naomi Wildman. There was, there was, there was a, there was a moment where, well, what if there was, there's a specific thing that's happening. What if they had to turn to a grown up Naomi Wildman who had, uh, well, I can't, there's things I can't say. And um, (laughs) it was a very, very intense three weeks in the room because it was a great story. And had you had 13 episodes, you were going to do this one. And it was going to be great if you could produce it because it was rather expensive what, what it was. Uh, and so that's hard, right? But you, the, the, the bulk of the story uh, and, and sort of the chapter markers were, were, were ahead. I think we, we started, we had about four, maybe five scripts in the piggy bank before we, we started shooting, which is a lot and, and hard to do. The writer's room, because this is the after the pandemic hiatus, was it a bifurcated writer's room for two and three? Uh, yes, it, it, it had to be. You know, there, there was there was a it was part of the early parts of season two. And then I had to break off to go start season three. And, and I only you know, I start with a fewer writers and then some of the writers are, are, are working on season two with Akiva. So, yeah, it, it, it it's quite difficult. That, that was the deal when I came on, as they said, we're going to shoot these two seasons back to back, which I had done before in, in 12 Monkey seasons three and four were were shot back to back. The difference was in 12 monkeys is that was one sort of serialized story. And we came in and we both, we, we broke the the stories for season three and four at the same time. We could, but that was a time travel story. So you were literally setting up crosses with your future and past selves in earlier episodes that you wouldn't see until 12 episodes later. And that was the satisfying aspect of the show. The mandate for Picard was that each season have its own, mission and feeling so when we came on for season two we didn't talk at all about season three and which always scared me because i i I know i knew the pressure but as the pressure for and the clock started to burn out season two was was rough there was uh, covid was no small part as to how that show was made and designed um there were there were a few versions of season two that were broken before we shot what we shot, so it was hard. So I there, I needed to jump, get a jump start on season three. It's it's all day, you know, because there's you're, you're on stage as well shooting season two, but you're trying to look seven months down the line at at this train that's coming for season three. <laughs> Be ready for it. Were there moments when you were? when season two was being filmed that you suddenly saw things that were going to affect what was going to happen in season three? No, season three was, was always kind of its own story. So not really. I mean, there were times when, when um, some elements of the season would be a surprise of season two, because I, I wasn't a part of the latter part. So for the tail end, I, I was uh, almost became as much as a, a viewer as everyone else. And as to how exactly those final scenes were going to play out with Picard's mom and the and Q and, and all this. I there I, I I didn't know until I saw the cuts. No, it was they were always separate stories. 
Like, I'm not sure if you can talk about this, and if you can't, it's fine. But there's this whole buildup in season two to Picard returning to Laris, and then what, from what we've seen, she's not a part of season three. So I'm wondering if that created a problem. No, you you will see Laris in season three. Oh, cool. But she's not a, she didn't get a poster, so she's not going to be a huge part of the she, season. She, is, I guess she is not a huge part of the season, no. But, um, and she, Orla Brady is wonderful. Oh, yeah. In fact, actually, my favorite Orla scene is is this one scene in the uh, first episode of season three. I, it, we, we didn't spend enough time with Laris uh, is probably my, my, my biggest regret. There was a, there was a version in season two where it was um, Laris came back in time with the gang. Uh, it was an alternate Laris uh, from an alternate reality. And I forget the powers that be had, had uh, objected to that notion in some way. And I, I forget why. If someone just tunes into season three years from now, after watching season two, do you feel like they'll, they're just going to say, this is a whole different show. Like it from top to bottom, is it going to feel and sound and, you know, in tone and everything, just like a new show? A little bit, <laughs> a, a, a little bit. It, it, it to me, when I look back at season one and two sort of complete a lot of the, the arcs of those characters that were introduced in season one, but I had always felt like the next generation characters never got their, their due finale. I didn't think nemesis was, it didn't feel like the end. Like I, I was always hoping one other movie, I was, I was hoping they were going to get their undiscovered country where we got to see them in a high stakes adventure. Each one of those characters plays a major part and, um, and ties up arcs that go back 30 years. But again, that wasn't necessarily what they set out to do when they were making this show. As Patrick famously says, that's not the show. It's not next generation. It's a deeper dive in Picard. So um, it was a lot of, me knocking on doors and taking meetings and begging and uh, to say, I think this could be great. Um, and certainly, obviously, everybody agreed because we wouldn't we wouldn't make it without Patrick's blessing or, or the studio's blessing or or, or, or the network's blessing. Um, but it was it it was always designed to be different. One of the things that was definitely missing from those next generation like especially nemesis and that you seem to be very focused on which i really appreciate is the the female star trek characters so right. even just you mentioning naomi wildman i loved that character so the fact that she was top of mind is a big deal um and i and there's you know gates was at the panel at comic-con you've got right. troy you've got crusher in there like do you feel like those characters were ignored and and how do you see them in the sort of big picture of the whole thing Yes, I, I would say certainly Beverly Crusher takes uh, a backseat in the uh, in this in those Star Trek films. And the 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 pitch for season three was always the first person you see is Beverly Crusher. Yes, I just spoiled it, everything. So, but uh, <laughs> it, but in, in an unexpected way because it's been twenty five years and you know no one's really the same person after that amount of time. But it was just a great jumping off point. If you were to look at Picard as 
not the character, but the show as this is a deconstruction of that character and a deep dive. It, I, I it, there are n- numerous times in season two. I was like, why are we not? We're going in Pathead. We should probably mention Beverly Crusher somewhere in here. I always felt that was a giant portion of his life. His best friend Jack Crusher. The, I, I always loved that mythology and those relationships. And so, if you're going to do the final story of Captain Picard, it feels like that would play a, a big part. And so that that was the jumping off point. And then Deanna Troy too has a pretty big revelation uh, to the to the story of of season three. But that's just again, it, it's I never look at it as let's let's make sure our female characters are are getting what's due. It's just let's make sure our characters like that should always fold into whether they're male or female, they should just, it should be great. And it it's a bummer when that doesn't happen in television or certainly didn't in the past um, because those are great characters. Beverly's a great character. Seven of nine, her arc this season is just one of my favorite things. Uh, Rafi is, has a really unexpected, terrific arc. We, we kind of reinvented her a little bit because in Picard, we she sort of wanders in her place in the world in those first two seasons. And in, in season three, we, we pick her up in a, in a pretty great place. And she has many scenes with a, one particular legacy character that are, I mean, you, you just want it to be its own show. It's so good. And will it be its own show? <laughs> no. uh, beyond, uh, beyond me in every way, I, you know, I, I'd be there in a heartbeat. One of the things I did like about season one is it acknowledged that there's been this gap in time. So it used a bit of the lost structure of bouncing back and showing us Picard in the intervening years and Rafi as well to kind of fill in some of those gaps. So it jumped back to the refugee crisis time. And right. so you get a better sense of what Picard's been up to, you know, since Nemesis. Now you have all of these characters. And I don't know if you can say this, but, you know, will we end the season having a good sense of, what they've been up to and what their lives have been like, because there's so many of them, like, you know, can you fit all that in? So I could say, yeah, this is what Jordy was doing. This is what Riker was doing. Although we know a bit about that already, but you know, and this is what Beverly's been doing. And yes, Beverly, Beverly, for sure. Um, uh, uh, Of course, Riker and Troy, you'll, you'll learn more about how they've been dealing with their lives and where they are currently in their relationship. Uh, Jordy, absolutely. Uh, Worf, um, you learn, yes, you learn a lot about Worf. We nod to things that have been established in canon, but not necessarily just drill down on. Um, so, uh, the answer is yes, absolutely. But would, do you, this may be impossible to answer, but do you use the same technique where you, you'll, we will bounce back 10 years? Oh, no, we, there are no... Well, hold on. <laughs> there are a couple of flashbacks from Picard's point of view, uh, but they are—they're not like uh, now. We cut to Worf on the bridge of uh, the Enterprise. You're, you're no, you won't. It's been a while. You know, I get a, I get that tweet a lot. <laughs> but he's the captain of the Enterprise. E. It's yeah, but it's it's been twenty something years since that. But but James Kirk tells us once you get the chair, you're never supposed to give it up, right? Right, but I, you know, Michael. You know, when I called Michael and I said, "Here's what we're thinking about for your character," 
And then he's like, that's funny. I've been thinking this about my character, which was exactly the same spirit. And it did not include him on the bridge of the Enterprise. And we talked about that and said, look, there, there is a thing established in canon where you are, you were at some, at one point captain of, of the Enterprise E. I don't think we should say that didn't happen. And I think maybe we can even suggest it did, but I don't think that that's where you are now. And he, he was a hundred percent on board. The key to all of, all of that was, I didn't want a single one of these actors not feeling 100% com- uh, comfortable with where their characters were. But it also needed to line up with, I think, good storytelling and, and Star Trek itself. It, it needed to make sense. So that was each one of those calls to every one of those actors, I, you know, did hours with them just to make, make sure we were, we were doing it all right. Was there reluctance on any of their parts and like who maybe was the most needed, the most convincing? Not reluctance, heavy discussion on how to do it right. There is one particular scene um, that is probably one of the most important scenes in the, the season with Beverly and, and Picard that we 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 spent the most amount of time on uh we spent the most amount of time on in the room we spent the most amount of time writing it uh and then working on it with patrick and gates to make sure no stone was unturned and that it made the most sense and was dramatic and you know it television has changed right there there's there is a lot of of can these characters have flaws? And I think, you know, sometimes in cable television, and I think as some people, the, some of the criticism of new Trek, or I guess they spell it N-U, which is hilarious, um, <laughs> is that it's nihilistic, it's depressing, and characters talk about their feelings too much, which can be valid. That is, it can be an absolutely valid criticism uh, of what that is. I think... It's finding Star Trek in modern television, which can can be jarring. So how do you stay true to Jean-Luc Picard and Beverly Crusher, but also elevate it um, and go a little deeper than you might have gone in 1994? Um, so that was the challenge. And, I, and so it's funny, yesterday I, I showed that scene to David Goodman, former Star Trek writer, writer on the Oroville, big Star Trek fan, you know, very good friend of mine. And I sort of held my breath because if, and, and he, the scene ended and he stopped. He's like, that's a great scene. He's like, I didn't know where you were going to go with that. He's like, and that, that is, I totally get it. And, and it was hard, and, but that's a relief to hear because there's a lot of boxes you want to check here. Um, no, that's not to say haters aren't going to hate. They're going to hate. But um, I would say the majority of, of everyone's going to feel really good about it. You, you mentioned boxes. And it, it remind, what you're talking about also reminds me of the Roddenberry box, which was a big point of contention for a lot of the writers, Ron Moore, et cetera, in the 90s. And it sounds like one of the issues was 
contention and and drama between the characters and because a next generation you know Riker never disagreed with Picard you know and right I assume you're not playing by those rules anymore uh, no I, I I don't think that's good uh, I, I but I it's but I know what people say that about Roddenberry but then like look back at motion picture Spock comes back onto the Enterprise a com- almost a completely different Vulcan who has fully embraced his Vulcan side and there's nothing but conflict. I mean, the scene, the first scene with him, Bones and Kirk sitting there after Spock has left his ceremony and come, like there's conflict um, and that's great. So I, I don't know, you know, I ask myself every once in a while, I wonder what Gene would feel. I know that there is one, one sequence for sure that Gene Roddenberry would smile at and say like that, there you go. Um, but at the same time, we live in a world where television has, has moved on that you will see conflict with some of these characters. Um, And to me, that's just great drama. There is a moment and where Riker and Picard have a very strong disagreement about tactically what to do in in a specific situation. And I, I love it. I love, I, I love seeing the later part of a chapter where, you know, Riker was a protege of Picard. What happens if those roles are, 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 are switched in a way that that Riker has to make a call that Picard does not agree with? Like, I want to see those those conversations. I and but I do get that there are a bunch of fans who say never. Um, <laughs> and by the way, we, you, you don't take those those scenes lightly. You sit down with Patrick and Jonathan, like, let's talk this out. Here's here's what both men are going through, and you don't move on until everybody is in agreement. So Jonathan Frakes in a somewhat recent interview talked about how awful he thinks it would have been during the making of next generation to have social media and to be getting, because, you know, things were so negative for them at the beginning. And he said it would have, you know, they say, don't read the comments. It's so, it would have been horrible. He thinks and really difficult. And now you are active on social in a time where everybody's on there. The minute they watch, they come rushing to talk about it. So how do you feel about how, how much social media has become a part of sort of making a show, explaining a show. Do you think it's helpful, harmful? How's that been? Uh, well, it's not, gr- it's not great. You know, again, I, I watched, uh, I don't know why, but I watched this YouTube video, w- which had valid criticisms of uh, season two recently. And also just wildly silly green, <sighs> like you don't know how television is made, but you can't, you know, I'm not going to screen that to the, but um, it, it is it is really hard. I, I would say the thing about people who are disappointed in any aspect of Star Trek is it, the new stuff doesn't negate the old stuff. You could still go back and watch those. You know, there's there are, there are franchises that have made choices that I don't like, but it doesn't mean I can't go back and love empire strikes back you you know so i think the social media again anger anger and disappointment sort of feeds in feeds itself i mean look at uh, the the business behind some of these social media sites and these review things that they bring in a lot of traffic i think it's really it's just the state of the world and i think you have to be a part of of it um and it's it's it can be hard to take it on the chin you know there's what there was like a, something on Twitter I forget I don't know it was just trolling and trolling and uh, I I don't tend to to look at, at that very much they they don't affect me but like there was just a volume to it so uh, I'll block a person 
if there's just I just don't want to see it anymore. And then they get mad that he blocked them. Oh, he can't take it. No, I just don't want you. Um, I'll take it from other people. So it's uh, <laughs> again, it's a hard thing. I would say most of the people who do this don't look at that stuff. They they don't, uh, and they're probably the smartest uh, of them. You know, David Goodman again, a friend, mentor, everything. It's like, why are you doing that? Why are you even looking <laughs> at that? And most of the time I'm entertained because, uh, you know, those those algorithms, if Star Trek Picard becomes part of your feed, then when I go on to YouTube, it will suggest all the good, interesting articles about people excited and all the, the crazy ones of people wearing masks and distorting their voice. It's hilarious. So I, I don't know. I think, look, this is part of the new world where where everyone has a voice uh, for better or for worse. And I don't think you can run from it. It does feel, though, that your coming in reminds me a little bit about something you experienced when Manny came into Enterprise and that final season, which also was kind of a call to nostalgia. It was just kind of a new show. And we talked about this before. So, you know, is 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 there a message to these fans that, you know, this is a new show and and a bigger call to nostalgia and therefore maybe they should look at it with new eyes instead of looking at it through the lens of everything they've tweeted out in all caps before. Hmm. That's a really interesting question with a lot of different parts. So let me start with, I don't think I'm going to convince those people no matter what. I think the, the hardcores are like, no way I've been burned. I'm like, okay, I get it. Absolutely. Maybe they'll tune in anyway to hate watch and, <laughs> uh, and be like, Hey, maybe my, my, I'm warming up to, this one's a little different. I, I'm certainly not saying you're not hearing me say season three is better than anything else. It's just different. When you say return to nostalgia, I, we really didn't try and think about it that way, right? So the big criticism now is uh, fan service is is the, <laughs> the is an overused phrase and member berries, all these things, right? But at the same time. If you don't do those things, it doesn't feel like the same universe, you know? So there is a, a mission aspect to the beginning of season three where, you know, I, I really, me personally, wanted to get back to the spirit of Starfleet and starships and going back out and space dock and, and, the, and, the, and the nautical Navy aspect of what Starfleet is. You could say that's nostalgia, or you could say that's just the slice of pie of Star Trek that I, I personally enjoy the most. Um, just as as Discovery is uh, another very specific slice of that, that pie, but I don't think one negates the other. I don't even know if I'm answering your question right, but that it, does that make sense? I get it. I mean, I think what you're getting at here, though, you know, and I'm just curious, like in your mind, what is it that makes Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Trek? Or maybe people have a different point of view on this, but what are you trying? What are the quintessential Star Trek things that made you love it in 1987 or whenever your first love really manifested um, that you're trying to evoke in this new season? I find the story of a starship crew, a family coming together 
in those high stakes exploration of a science fiction story, the sort of Navy in space, characters with deep personal arcs trying to do the right thing against incredible odds. Those aspects of Star Trek to me uh, appeal the most. Also, it's a it is literally a space opera in the respect that it is music and and loud and orchestral and should feel um, operatic in that way. But that doesn't mean that there's a Star Trek that doesn't doesn't have to do any of those things. I think if I think the MCU is a great example where they they have every color of the rainbow. Uh, in that universe and isn't that terrific and then they can cross and and work together i think that that's to me what star trek could be um that you'll always like one more than the other like i will always love probably wrath of khan more than any other star trek now that could be because i saw it when i was young or it could be just because that is the kind of Star Trek I, I want to see. It's certainly not everybody's uh, Star Trek. So it's hard to say uh, one specific thing. So it's interesting because, you know, everybody does have their own idea of what Star Trek is. So when you came aboard Picard, there were a lot of voices who had pretty different ideas about what Star Trek is. So what were, what was it like when you first, you know, got into that room and you've got all different people with all different, very strong ideas. I don't think it was any of us saying your Star Trek is not Star Trek. It was right. that specific aspects of those shows appealed to um, them more. Uh, for Michael Chabon, who was in the room early in season two, it's the original series uh, so much uh, has, has the most profound impact on him. And also, I love the original series, but I also love the movies. He, maybe he might be less inclined to point to the movies, let's say, where I would be more heading in that direction. Uh, and the same goes with Akiva. And, and while you're having these conversations, it, it's easy to get frustrated with one another. And then, then it's kind of amazing. And then you look at it and you're like, hey, isn't this great? We, there, there's 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 something about this franchise that appeals to all the different parts of us and and no one's wrong about what they like they just like what they like and I, and ultimately I, I found that to be uh invigorating and uh and actually a place of, to bond over to discussion hey you didn't you didn't like that well I really like this and I like this part of this it is harder I would say, to craft a show without a, a singular vision. So someone in that room has to say, we're doing this. And in the case of season two, that was Akiva. It was like, okay, it's my job to unify <laughs> uh, the banners here. And uh, we're, we're going to tell this story. And that's hard. That's, that's, that, that is hard to do. And in season three, that, would, uh, that was me. You mentioned Wrath of Khan, and this was a subject brought up by Alex during the Comic-Con panel, specifically talking about the villain, I think, but it's a, sometimes fans are like, oh, we've heard that before. They're, they're recreating the Khan villain, and I think every Star Trek movie, someone, some producer or writer said, oh, yeah, it's going to be just like Wrath of Khan, you know? Yeah, and, it's, it, I, I, I don't, that's not, it's not Wrath of Khan, it, it, for sure. Okay. Uh, I think 
what Alex was referring to is the spirit of an antagonist, a somewhat larger than life antagonist who you, who, uh, you just want to watch. You want to spend as much time with as you do the heroes. Um, and I think that could be any aspect, any part of the spectrum of Star Trek villainy that you, that you want. Uh, I, I would say the other aspect is there are space battles there the, in, in this. And so I think the spirit of Wrath of Khan of, and what Alex was talking about was trying to outsmart your opponent, um, which is de- definitely plays a part, but no, we're not, we're not promising Wrath of Khan. It's very, it's different in that way as to, it actually ties into some, I can't say. I won't say, but some <laughs> some storylines in some mythology from previous Star Trek incarnations. I think you have mentioned, or maybe Alex mentioned this cat and mouse thing, and I, it, it occurred to me the other day, like who's the cat and who's the mouse, and because you've got a lot of cats actually, because Jordy's a Commodore, Picard's an Admiral, Riker's Captain, Worf is a Captain, Seven is a command a commander for First Officer, so presumably there's another Captain, so. It's cats versus mice, it, 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 uh, very, very much. But there's a lot of cats. Um, it, it, it is a, it is a. They're put in a particularly unique situation where they, uh, the pressure is on. Uh, let's put it that way. But there is a, I mean, because you kept on tweeting out pictures of it. I know you were shooting on it in the last day of shooting and the first day of shooting. So that's your major set. That ship is the hero ship of the season or one of many, or do you redress it into 20 different ships? Or? No, it's not. It, we, 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 are, we, are, we spend the most time on one ship uh, this season. That is not the Enterprise, I'll say. That does not mean you won't get your Enterprise fixes that you're looking for. <laughs> um, there's no way I would, but it is a, a ship that's a bit of an underdog. Um, it is not the stargazer. Uh, it's lit a bit differently. Uh, I think maybe the stargazer was, had a gloss to it and was, uh, was, was lit up where this is a little bit more um, in the spirit of a, of a movie. I wouldn't say darker, but it, it has uh, just, it has a different feel to it than season two. And all those characters that I just mentioned, not all of them can be assigned to that ship, though, right? Like some of them are, some of them aren't. I would assume. Yeah, yeah. I think you're thinking about that's uh, the story in a more in a. Here's the mission, everybody, Avengers assemble and go. It's not. It's not that. It starts personal and becomes something pretty gigantic to the world of Starfleet. This is really hard to talk about. <laughs> well, that was, this is, I, I've said on this podcast before, you know, even like season two, I said what, what Picard was supposed to be about was about Picard. And there, you know, so season one was his regrets over the Romulans um, and regrets over data. And season two was exploring his past and his mother and his ability to love very personal stories, very much yeah. about him. And I've always said, I don't want Picard to be about, oh, there's this new threat and it's coming into the galaxy and you need to go save it. And, and, and we've never yeah. heard of it before. Right. It, it's it's just this new thing, you know. Right. There's no connection to Picard there. It's just like, oh, right. can you go salt, save the universe again like the Borg, you know. But he's done that. He's had his time doing that. Right. So 
are you keeping that element yes. at the core of the show? Yes. No, this season starts very personal. Uh, and this, but even if this was the last Star Trek, the next generation movie, it would have started exactly this way. So it, it starts personal. That's not to say there aren't very high personal and I don't want to say galactic, but galactic stakes that there, that it is that there, it, there's still a high stakes aspect to this, uh, it's not this is us in space, you know. <laughs> so, um, but no, it 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 starts as as personal uh, for Picard as it could possibly ever be. All right, so that was part one of our interview with Terry Metalis. We have a whole lot more coming, so you'll come back next week, as I'm sure you always do, to hear the rest of that. So let's wrap things up with our bits of the week. Tony, what's yours? I've got a very important follow up, of course. Um, <laughs> In our interview with a different showrunner, uh, Aaron Watke, a few weeks ago, we talked about the Star Trek Prodigy Writers Room on Twitter getting to 10,000 followers, and if so, they were going to get a special reward. And the news broke this week. It was big news that this happened, and the Hageman brothers got the Writers Room their pizza party. So... Look tasty. We just too. want to make sure everyone knows. And Aaron actually demanded on Twitter that we discuss this on the podcast. <laughs> and so I am now doing that. I have now fulfilled my obligation. What is your bit of the week? <laughs> Mine is I'm beating a dead Gorn. So I've every you guys have heard me rant about the Gorn. Someone else named Sarah Cook wrote this fantastic piece for Women at Warp, um, a site I like very much about the whole problem with portraying the Gorn as evil. And I, you should go read it and you'll see that she says everything I've been saying, but much more concisely and much more articulately. And the main idea is it has nothing to do with how they look. And it isn't even about who knew about them and who didn't. It's the whole concept of how they've been created. She makes all the points. I'm going to let her make them. Please go read it. And then you will agree with both of us forever. Both you and her. Yes. Not me. Correct. Me and Sarah, who I've never met. Sarah, you're a genius. That's all I have to say. I've spoken to Sarah. She's a lovely person. I don't necessarily agree with both of you. And that's all I will say. <laughs> and I will resist responding. So that's it for another episode of All Access Star Trek. We've got a couple more weeks before we're back to reviews, which with the season premiere of Lower Decks. So return next week to hear the rest of what Terry Metalis has to say about season three and maybe what could come after season three of Star Trek Picard. Who knows? Come to the site. Come talk about it. Tell us what you think. Tell me you agree with me about the Gorn with me and Sarah and uh, and what you think of Terry's interview. We'll see you next week. Bye.